All right, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we turn to our time in the Word and uh, ask him uh, to speak to us uh, by his Spirit uh, and through uh, his Son, Jesus. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, that even on a weekend uh, such as this, after or following uh, our Independence Day celebration, uh, we're grateful that we can gather in freedom without fear or threat, external threat, uh, to our gathering. Uh, That we can do what we're doing and say what we're saying and proclaim the name of Jesus. And can do it feeling secure. Yet we know that there's a freedom that Caesar, there's a freedom that Pharaoh, there's a freedom that our government cannot give to us. And that only Christ can bring that freedom. And so we thank you that as we turn to your text today that tells us about that freedom, that that freedom, we find it in Jesus. And it's a freedom that is not... uh, at the whim of uh, authorities, but it's a freedom that you've given to us, which is ours for an eternity. So help us, we pray, as your people to live in that freedom, that freedom of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today, July 7th, right? Three days after the 4th of July and that celebration uh, by our nation, Uh, our nation's independence, or at least the declaration uh, of that independence. It's going to take a few years uh, for that to be realized, though, right, Uh, in the life of our country. Uh, First sentence, second paragraph of the Declaration states, and I bet you memorized this in seventh grade, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? Pursuit of happiness, right? Now, whatever you may think of this assertion, especially since at the time this was written, there were still a half a million people enslaved, right, who would not yet know these freedoms themselves, all right? It was not evident to them. The reality is that that rebellion started uh, by the colonists will eventually bring freedom uh, to many, if not all. And it will also inspire subsequent movements of freedom, right? The French Revolution coming quickly on the back of the American Revolution reminds us uh, of that impact. Uh, But individuals and nations rise and fall in the pursuit of freedom. And there is a lot of blood that is spilled in that pursuit as well. Now, we are certainly the beneficiaries of those efforts, but the freedoms that we enjoy for the sake of community, right, are bound by laws, man-made laws, which we've agreed are okay for us, right? Those laws allow us to live within, we might say, healthy freedoms. We may be free, but our freedom is not, in a sense, pure. It's still constrained by mutual agreements, which is a good thing, right? Because the absence of that mutual constraint would be what? Anarchy, right? Anarchy. So as much as we talk about freedom, all right, in nation states, and even love to throw around that theologically loaded term free will, is there a way to be truly free 
not in a historical sense, not in a, a political sense, but in a way which reflects the character of God and its effect on us, we who have been created in the image of God. How can we experience this freedom? So let's do this. Let's go back in time, all right, past the revolution, right? Um, let's go back to a time when freedom was just as important to the ancients uh, as it is to us today. But let's look at it in the context of the Apostle Paul um, talking about freedom in an age of high government control, all right, of people's lives and, and livelihood. Uh, let me give you just a, a brief example of, by what I mean about the constraint on freedom uh, in people's lives. So, uh, right now, we are in the adult Bible study class during Sunday morning uh, looking at uh, early Christianity and the formation of Christianity because our goal is to, once we get there, to better understand the different denominations and expressions of Christianity, especially in the United States. Um, but we're looking, if you will, at connecting the dots, how we got to where we are today. Um, and one of the interesting things that, that we discovered as we were learning more about the early church, is that the Roman emperors, right, the most powerful of powerful, right, though they, they, they sat in that seat of power, lived in such paranoia, all right, for their own life. Uh, they lived in such paranoia of allowing people to be free that groups, that gatherings, that organized societies were forbidden. So a famous example of this uh, was the request by some city officials uh, to organize men into a volunteer fire department. And the emperor saying no, because if you allow the men to organize themselves into the volunteer fire department, that will allow them to organize uh, a conspiracy against me, possibly. So they would rather see the city burn right, um, than allow the free assembly of people. So in this letter, Paul's not addressing, though, the lack of freedom under Roman authority. Of course, there's not much he can do about that. Uh, but he is instead addressing the highly regulated, uh, highly controlled world of religion, particularly to those who have converted um, into the Christian faith. Paul has recognized that in the body of Christ, all right, in Galatia, there is this suffocating legalism which has crept into their midst. So let me give you the text. All right, Angie's going to put it up on the screen for us. Uh, this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. This is the message version. All right, I know I don't use it often, but um, I like the way that it, it uh, presents the, the, the context. Um, but you're welcome to use your tablet or the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to look at a different version and see how it's recorded. Uh, but Paul says this, For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all this? It's not what you and I do, submit to circumcision or reject circumcision. And that's the issue that's happening in the Galatian church, is that there are legalists uh, within their midst who are saying that uh, if you're not circumcised, you know, you're not legit, right? That you will not have God's love, you will not experience God's grace and forgiveness, he will not welcome you into his midst. 
unless you uh, abide uh, by this uh, external law. But he says this, it's what God is doing. And he is creating something totally new, a free life. All who walk by this standard are the true Israel of God, his chosen people. Peace and mercy on to them. All right, so you can get a, a sense of, of what he is after in that text as he chides them, criticizes them, exhorts, exhorts them to uh, consider that what was given to them prior to embracing a different message. So suffocating legalism creeping into the midst of the church in Galatia. Uh, and I love this. Uh, this is from chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, he opens his letter to them by saying this, I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting him who calls, um, which is no gospel at all, right? Because then he goes on to say, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? Who's tricked you? Who's fooled you? And then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So in the midst of the church, in this province of Galatia, there's legalism. There's self-justification. There's burdensome bondage, if you will, to a works righteousness approach to life and faith. I must please God in order to earn his forgiveness and my salvation. Have I done enough to be accepted? Is what they're saying. But in asking that question, what they're saying is wrong. What they're saying is contrary to what God has already told him as his people. Because it's created for those who gather in that, in that, uh, in that body of Christ there in that province. It's a, it's a religious life predicated on fear. Not of Caesar, of course, but, and as bad as that fear could be. But a religious life predicated on, on a fear of God and a life where the believer work to avoid punishment rather than to respond to the forgiveness and grace of God in their life and serve others because they, they got to serve others, not because they had to. The believer did not know freedom, even though they should have. I thought, in a sense, it's like this idea, um, you know, when you consider when the Declaration of Independence was written, right? As I said earlier, 500,000 slaves still in bondage in the United States did not yet know that freedom, right? So perhaps these Christians were like those who were still enslaved. They had heard of that freedom. Uh, they had seen perhaps that freedom even written down on a, a New Testament letter, but they didn't experience that freedom themselves. They longed to know that freedom, or at least should have longed to know that freedom that only Christ could bring. So, for instance, think about it for your life then. Let's put it this way. If you find yourself saying something like this, I must have done something wrong, that's why God is punishing me. Or I must have done something wrong, that's why I'm in a bad spot, right? Or I must not be doing enough and God must hate me because he hasn't blessed me like he blessed my coworker or he blessed my, my sister, right? You're living under the law. If when you, give your, uh, when you give, let's say, your money or your time or your talents, if it's done out of obligation rather than joy, 
you can be living under the law. If you're seeking a backup plan of salvation, or at least an attempt trying to impress God, right? By God, look at what I do for your church. You're still living under the law. If you and I fall into that trap of comparison and we say, thank God I'm not like that other person who did those awful things, we're living under the law. Supposing that our life is full of acts of righteousness while that other person's life is not. But what if someone more righteous than me or you were to walk into the room, right, and compare their life to our life? We would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? (laughs) You see what a losing game comparison is? It reminded me of um, an interesting what's called category of people. All right, uh, defined uh, by the modern state of Israel. They're called righteous among the nations. Have you ever heard this phrase used about certain people in history? Righteous among the nations. And it's a title used by the state to describe non-Jews who risked their lives during the Holocaust to hide and to save Jews from extermination um, and from the Nazis. Uh, and the term originates... Uh, uh, it's a righteous Gentiles. It's a term in, from rabbinic Judaism that uh, refers back to the seven laws of Noah, which you've probably never even heard of. Um, but similar to the Ten Commandments. Uh, and certainly those men and women who are counted as righteous among the nations uh, for uh, what they did for those others, um, they did the right thing. But I don't want my life compared to their life, right? Because I feel like I would fall short with a comparison like that. You see what a losing game it becomes for us to live by the law and to desire God's acceptance of us by the law. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul keeps coming back to the cross. Not to the law and its false promise of freedom. Not to comparison, but to the cross the cross six times in this letter he returns to the only thing which will save people from legalism from comparison from faith in their own works or supposed righteousness in fact so much so that he writes in chapter 221 if righteousness comes by the law then Christ has died in vain and if Christ has died in vain we're wasting our time we should be at home in front of the tv cheering on the women's team right (laughs) the cross is it So it goes like this. The wounds of Christ bring healing to anyone. The wounds of Christ bring healing to whomever trusts in him. The legalists or Judaizers were boasting in their outward acts, specifically circumcision. But Paul is now boasting in the crucified and risen Savior. You might say he even gloried in it. Not the brutality or suffering, not in the cross as an instrument of of capital punishment, Uh, but in a sense of seeing Christ and the work of Jesus lifted high and on display for all the world to see. So let me ask you this. Why would Paul glory in the cross or put emphasis on it? I'm just going to give you three quick answers here. All right. Paul would glory in the cross. He would put emphasis on it for three reasons. The first is this. He knew the person of the cross. He knew the person of the cross. 
In his letter to the Galatians, Jesus is mentioned 45 times. 45 times. One-third of the verses in the whole text contain some reference to him. So the person and work of Jesus Christ captivated Paul. And it was Christ who made the cross what it was. Think about it this way. So Paul, in his early years, if you, if you grew up in the church and you heard the story of, of Paul's conversion, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, all right, he was known as Saul. Okay, um, That was his Hebrew name. Uh, he was quite the popular guy. In the sense that, that he was well-educated, uh, he was influential, he had the right pedigree. His resume brought him glory among his peers, right? And we've all experienced that as we've, uh, you know, run the hamster wheel in the university. We run the hamster wheel at work, you know, uh, trying to accomplish things. But after he meets Jesus... After he meets Jesus, all the self-glory, he says, becomes refuse. He calls it human waste in Philippians chapter 3. It's trash to him. But then he reminds us that the legalists do not glory in the cross of Christ. Why? Because they don't know Christ. They do not know the person of the cross. And because of that, here's the second thing, they do not know the power of the cross. So the person of the cross and the power of the cross. But Paul did. Again, a learned and influential person. And as a Pharisee, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews who awaited the coming of the Messiah. Remember that in Paul's day, the idea of the Messiah was a political one. A political one to free the people, all right, from uh, uh, Rome. Which occupied Judea and Jerusalem in those surrounding areas. So... Because of that, then the idea of the cross, which was fit only for criminals, the cross becomes preposterous. And so what at one time was a stumbling block to him becomes the very foundation for his message that Christ died for our sins. Again, Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion. At the very end of that section of scripture, Paul and the other disciples are in Damascus, okay, in modern day Syria. And Luke records this. He says, immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? See, again, people are recalling his pedigree. They're recalling his, his, uh, his past behavior. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And the answer is no, not at all. He's come bearing a very different message from the one he persecuted. And then the author writes, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So think of it this way. Having recently celebrated the 4th of July, for Paul, the cross meant liberty. Liberty. First from self, that's Galatians 2.20. Then from the flesh, that's Galatians 5.24. And then from the world, Galatians 6.14. From sin, from eternal death, from Satan, in the death and resurrection of Christ, the power of God is released to give us deliverance through the forgiveness of sins and the victory through new life and his resurrected life. Why? Because Paul says, it's no longer we who live at that point. It's Christ who lives within me. It's Christ who lives within you. 
There is no power in the law to give us victory over self. There is no power in the law to give us victory over the flesh and, well, the law, right? Let alone Satan and eternal death. On the contrary, all the law does is appeal to our ego. Can I do something to please God? It encourages us to rely on our works or perceived merits. So we might even say the legalist inflates the ego, flatters the flesh, and pleases the world. But as Christians, we're called because Christ is in us, in a sense, to crucify all three. And Paul reminds us as he reminds them that only Jesus can do this. All right, from the text we know Paul knew the person of the cross and the power of the cross, but he also knew the purpose of the cross. And what's the purpose? Well, I've hinted at that a little bit already, but think of it this way. To bring into the world a new people of God. The purpose of the cross, to bring into the world a new people of God. How so? Well, first by justifying us, that is reconciling us. And then beginning something new in us as the people of God. uh, By telling us that such things as circumcision and works and comparison are no longer needed. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.19, again Paul to the church at Corinth. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. That yes, much blood has been spilled across history in the name of human freedom. uh, But this time the only blood, the only blood that matters is Christ and him offering himself for us. And with Jesus in us then, this new creation this new creation is a free one. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And that newness brings freedom. Freedom from the burdens and the bondage of needing to please or placate or convince God that you're worthy. At liberty to respond to the work of God in our lives to use what he's given you and me to use for the sake of others, unencumbered, unburdened by that never-satisfied devil of comparison that wears you down. That's why Paul is so peeved, right? How, having once known the grace of God, did you go back to living under the law? Ugh, right? The person, the power, and the purpose of the cross bring us nothing short of true biblical freedom. No nation, no ruler could ever do that. And he reminds them and us that only Jesus can. We may celebrate independence as a nation, right? But we celebrate true freedom as followers of Jesus. In his name, amen.